And if you would, go ahead, grab your Bible, or however you're going to access the scriptures this morning, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. So last week we started a series called, uh, basically, Resurrection, If It's Real. So you might think, well, yeah, I'm, I, I go to church, I believe the resurrection's real, that's why we, we come to church, but here's the truth I was confronted with about a month ago in studying for Easter, realizing that Although we hear the story of the resurrection, sometimes it doesn't settle in to the reality of what it's actually supposed to mean in our lives. Even though we think it's true, we treat it more like legend or fairy tale. Because if it becomes real in our lives, then it changes everything about who we are. And we know that from the early stories after the resurrection, when you look at the scriptures, you realize that people who encountered Jesus after he rose from the dead, everything changes for them. They cannot be the same person that they were before. And so as we look at those stories, we start to realize there's some important things like last week we talked about, we actually can believe that the resurrection really did happen. Because not just because the Bible says so, but because history actually verifies that Jesus rose from the dead. And so this week we kind of move into more of a personal story, which is this journey that Jesus has with two people walking down a road from Jerusalem to Emmaus in, in Luke chapter 24. And in this encounter Jesus has with these two guys, you and I find a way to understand that there's a way to actually understand Jesus. There's a way to understand the resurrection and know what that means. There's something that God does in our life that illuminates our hearts and our minds to see things that maybe we didn't understand before or we didn't see before when he begins to encounter us. It's something that is supernatural. It verifies what we know, but it also goes deeper to the point where we understand what we didn't understand before. When it comes to the resurrection, and, and it more so is for those who lived at that time, because they were coming to grips with, they, when Jesus said he was going to die and rise from the dead, they didn't believe him. And when he died, they thought that was it. They were done. It was over. Jesus is not going to be who we thought he was. But then when he rose from the dead, everything started to become clear to them, which was not clear to them before. They started to look back through their own history and through their own scriptures, and they started to realize Jesus knew what he was talking about because this was something that was foretold literally thousands of years earlier. And so there's that light that goes on, and all of us, all of us have to have that kind of experience with God to see that what he says about who he is and what he's done is true and how it begins to transform us from the inside out. So it's kind of like this. So anybody, hopefully by now, since it's like 15 years old, you've seen the movie The Sixth Sense. Anybody seen that movie? You guys need to get out more, okay? All right? So, great concept. So, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, shame on you. You haven't seen it yet, okay? So, long story short, you watch that movie, and it's about, it's about a psychiatrist named uh, Dr. Um, Malcolm Crow, who he is counseling a young boy who believes he's seeing dead people. And you go through the entire movie, and you get to the end of the movie, and you discover something that you were not ready for. The person who was actually dead was Dr. Malcolm Crow. He was dead through the entire movie except for the opening scene. And when you get to the end of the movie and that twist, it plays with your mind because immediately you start tracing back through the entire movie, every scene that you've just watched, realizing that though you thought he was alive, he was actually dead. And if you're like me, I've watched it three or four times. And after you get it through the first time and you realize it, you can't watch that movie the same way twice. Because now every single scene you, you see, you see it from a completely different perspective. Why? Because you know, even though you originally thought in that scene he was alive, he actually wasn't talking to anybody and he was dead. And everything starts to make sense that you couldn't figure out before. You're like, that's why that scene seemed awkward. That's why this happened. And then it all starts to make sense. The resurrection is the same thing. When, you, when, when those early followers saw that Jesus rose from the dead, everything from that point back, they started to look and go, this was supposed to happen. 
this now makes sense. I understand this. And that's kind of what happens in this encounter that these two guys have with Jesus on this road. And that's what we want to look at today because I think there's an experience that God wants for all of us. That there's that moment that the light comes on that not only do we understand it up here, but we're transformed from the inside out because Jesus is doing something deep and profound in us. So this morning we want to take a journey of understanding, a journey to understand Jesus. Really, it's a journey on this road to Emmaus that all of us have to take in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to kind of take one section of the story at a time. So let's start with verses 13 through 17, which tells us that it begins in the past. Our journey with Jesus begins at a moment in the past. And what does that past look like? So starting in verse 13, it says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So what's going on here? So these, these guys are having this, this, this journey. And, and in this journey, they're, they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And in their mind, they had believed that Jesus was going to be the one, and we'll get to that in the story. And so what they're walking away from is is this moment of great loss and failure because Jesus did not turn out to be what they thought he was. And so when when Jesus shows up, even though they don't know it's him yet, he asks them this question like, like what's going on? What's this conversation? The conversation was, we thought he was the one, but he wasn't. So now everything's beginning to fall down around us because we have believed he was the one, and he's not. Now, what's going on in this story is, is for most of us, we wouldn't catch this because we don't have a Jewish history in our brains. But there's a significant kind of situation that many, many times when we look at the Bible like, oh, he just, they have, just happen to be walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Why Emmaus? Oh, it's just this little town on the side of the road. They're just walking on this journey, walking away from Jerusalem. But there's more. Emmaus was a very significant little village in the history of Israel because hundreds, a few hundred years before, in 167 BC, there was a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes who wanted to dominate the Jews. And so he didn't just want to dominate them, he wanted to discourage them and destroy them. So he came up with this idea that he would take a pig, which was completely unholy and unclean, and he was going to take that pig and he was going to sacrifice it on the altar in the Holy of Holies in the temple. As a statement to the Jews, I own you, I'm control, and he was going to decimate them. But as a result, the, Jew, the Jews kind of stepped up and said, no, 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 and they, they came to the defense of the temple and their people, and there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus, you might have known the name Maccabees, that comes from apocryphal writing, which you would find in like the Catholic Bible, records in, in the history records that he rose up and he led Israel to basically push back the Greeks and not let them dominate and not, not let them control. And that the greatest victory in that battle happened in Emmaus. So when these two guys are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, there's something significant that's going on here. They're walking away from Jerusalem, which represents what? The loss of their hopes and dreams. Jesus had just died. And so they're walking away from Jerusalem to where? Emmaus. And as a Jew, when you're walking towards Emmaus, in your mind, you're remembering that's the last place of the greatest victory that we had. So what's going on inside of them? You can pick up from the context. They're completely disillusioned with what they thought was true. They're now walking away. And you have to be, if you're honest, you have to be dis- they're disillusioned not only just with the circumstance. They're disillusioned with God. 
You've promised the Messiah. He, Jesus was supposed to be the one, and now he's dead. It just doesn't make sense to us. Why is this significant? Because I think for all of us, there's a moment in your past, for most of us, where you, something happened, and you became disillusioned with God. You started to, to believe something about God that wasn't altogether true, but your experience seemed to say to you what it was true. And so because of that, you're, you're walking away from God in your life. You, you may be walking away from God even though you're in church, but inside you know that there's some kind of disappointment that you've had with God because it hasn't, it hasn't worked out to the way you wanted it to. In fact, in his book, Rumors of God, John Tyson writes this when he's talking about this, this encounter. He says, Jesus walks with the disillusioned even when they are walking away from him. These guys were walking away from Jerusalem totally dejected, and who shows up? Jesus does. And he's walking side by side with them. See, you and I think when we're disillusioned and we walk, we're walking away from God that we can somehow get away from him. You can never get away from God. In fact, I've, I've become convinced in my own experience and with other people I've talked to, no matter how far away you think you get from God, you're never far away from God. There's something in you that knows he's still there. In fact, one of my, one of my, my friends uh, that uh, she was talking about her past, when she was in high school, into college, she was an addict, and she was constantly going to parties, constantly getting high. That was her life. But she grew up in a Christian household. She grew up in a pastor's house, household, and she grew up in almost rebellion of that. And she had walked away from God and distanced herself. And she said, the crazy thing about my experience is she said that, that even when, when my friends and I were getting, to part, getting together to the party and I was about to get high, I just knew in my upbringing that something told me that God is still there. So this is what she said. Every time before I would get high, I would pray. She said, I know it sounds totally bizarre, but she said, because I knew, that, I knew that Jesus was there. Even though he wasn't going to approve about what I was going to do, somehow I had to acknowledge that he was there. And she knew that through the, the darkest moments of her life. Why? Because she had walked as far as she could get away from God, and she still couldn't walk away from him. Because Jesus walks with those who are disillusioned. He doesn't leave us by ourselves. And that's what was happening here. And so for each one of us, there's a moment in our past where maybe you've done a good job of covering over that disillusionment, that you feel some discouragement towards God, and you haven't been honest with it. But today it's okay to be honest with that because guess what? Jesus walks with you. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's always with us. Which leads to the second part of this journey in understanding Jesus and the impact of the resurrection. Look at verses 18 through 24. So it says, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor, this is great, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Of course, they don't know it's Jesus they're talking to, but basically they're saying, are you kind of slow? Do you not want, no, everybody in the city knows what's going on, and, and yet you're asking us this question. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is uh, now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, not, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. What's going on in this, is in, and this is true for us, is that there's this moment of confusion. There's something that happens when we journey towards Jesus and understanding who he is, his death and resurrection, where we are confused by him. He doesn't make sense to us. 
And so for, for these gentlemen, what's happening in their mind is they're, they're baffled by what they've just experienced because they said it. We had hoped he was the one. And they had all the way up to the point of his death, they thought, this is the one. He's going to be the one. This is the one that we've waited for. All of our people waited for. Why? Because he's here. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to set up the kingdom of Israel once again. Everything is going to be wonderful. We're, no problems. Everything's going to be great. He's the one. And now he's dead. And we've heard rumors that he's alive, but we haven't seen him. So they're, they're upside down. Can you imagine what that confusion is like when everything that you thought was true now is not true in your own mind? Anybody want to admit you've ever gone through that in your life or you've been totally upside down and think, okay, God, you don't make sense at all. This is what's going on. They, they can't make sense of this because of the confusion. And I think this comes in our lives so many times. See, they had, they had assessed to Jesus an agenda for themselves. They had looked at Jesus and they had filled in the blanks for him, which is, okay, the Messiah is supposed to conquer Rome, give us freedom, give us our land back, give us our identity back as Jews. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do in their mind. That's the agenda that they had. How many times in our life, I talked about this the last couple weeks, we talked about it earlier, you and I set agendas for God. We do it all the time. There are certain things that we look at this, we look at God through our lens and say, okay, God, if you're really God, then this is what you have to do. You may not say it outwardly, but you believe this, that God has to prove himself, so you unintentionally, you create hoops for him to jump through, or kind of a punch list that he has to go down, and if he doesn't answer to those things, then you start to become confused, because you've, you've just told God what it is to be God. You haven't let him define himself. And this is what they're doing, and this is what we do. And what is the one thing, or what is the two things, or what are the things that have led you to be discouraged? Why? Because God hasn't answered what you thought he was supposed to answer. It happens in all of our lives. It was a long time ago, but when, when Kim and I were first married, we went with her family uh, up north, and we went to Tahoe for, uh, to watch fireworks on the 4th of July, and her, her cousin had his guitar, and he broke out his guitar, and it was, we were just kind of singing. He was playing music, and and so these two guys came over and sat down right next to us. And one guy said, hey, he goes, do you mind if I, I borrow your guitar and play a little? And so Kim's cousin says, sure. And so he starts strumming on the guitar and everything. And so we start having this conversation, really got really deep really fast because Kim's cousin's like a raving evangelist and he can't help himself. And he like goes to Jesus in five seconds. I mean, it's like, boom, they're already, he's already talking about Jesus. Well, immediately the guy who's playing the guitar pushes back. He's like, I, I don't want to talk about God. He goes, don't, don't, don't bring your God talk to me. And, and so, like, what, why? And this is what he said. He said, a few years ago, he goes, my parents were going through the most difficult time in their marriage. And it was hard on them, it was hard on me. And I prayed every single day that God would save their marriage. And he didn't. And they're divorced. And he said, I blame God and if God is, that's the God that there is, that when you ask for something that you really want and you don't get it, then I won't believe that there is a God. I remember when I heard that, I was like, whoa, we went deep really fast. That was like a three-minute conversation. The guy's spilling his guts, and he's revealing the agenda that he brought to the table for God. How many times do we do that? They had done this to Jesus. We do it to Jesus all the time. And we're disappointed because God hasn't performed. But what I've discovered, and I said earlier, God's agenda is always better than ours. 
And the reason you and I don't have his agenda is because we can't think and act and speak and do what he does. Why? Because he's God. And we have to trust that he is God. So it's filled with confusion. Let's go on, verses 27, 25 to 27. This is what happens in this journey in understanding Jesus. It's interrupted by a moment of clarity. There's the light that comes on. Listen to verses 25 to 27. It says, then he said to them, this is, remember, they don't know it's Jesus yet, but this is kind of crazy. This is a stranger walking with them. This is what he says. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's pretty bold. Some stranger walks up to you and says, you're foolish. You don't know what's going on. And they're saying to him, no, you don't know what's going on. You haven't been around the last couple of days. Going on, if you look at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And I love this, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. Capture what's happening here. They don't know it, but the author of scripture is standing right in front of them. They're having a conversation with him as he walks down the road with them. And then it says in that passage, Jesus, starting with Moses and all the prophets and through all of their Old Testament scriptures is what they had at the time, begins to allow the light to come on and say, listen, this guy Jesus, he was embedded in scripture thousands of years ago even, even back to the book of Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible. Go back to the book of Genesis. And so he starts to explain to them in their own writings, which by the way, if they were good Jewish boys, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. They had read those passages. They had maybe even memorized some of the passages. But they had never seen Jesus embedded throughout their history. And then he comes along and suddenly he starts, this is like the sixth sense. He's now going back in their history and saying, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. And they're going, oh my goodness, I never saw that. Now remember, they still don't know it's him standing in front. But, but I was just kind of speculating and thinking about what, what was this like for them? What could have that conversation when they're having this, this, this walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, what could have Jesus said to them that would have like made the light go on for them? So bear with me, but I want you to capture, this, is, this could be similar to the conversation that they had. That right away Jesus goes right back to Genesis and says, hey, by the way, this, isn't, this is what God had intended from the beginning. And he goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve had been deceived. And now God is addressing the serpent who deceived them and he said this, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking about the serpent, the serpent, which is the enemy, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Another, another translation says crush. What is, what is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus and the enemy. And eventually there will be, there will be this encounter that changes everything. That's back, that's three chapters into scripture. It's already there, it's already embedded. Then Jesus probably took them through Genesis and said, let me tell you about Abraham. And then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then he goes through, and then Moses, and he goes through all that. And then he gets into the prophets, and maybe he went to Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, and says, hey, listen, my birth is already in there too, long before it ever happened. Which is therefore, in, the, in Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord God himself, or Lord himself will give uh, a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That comes long before Jesus ever is born a virgin. Then maybe he took him to Micah chapter 2, or chapter 5, verse 2, and says, by the way, where the city I was going to be born in, that's in there too. It says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are you? Are you too little to be among the clans of Judah? From, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Even the, the place of his birth 
And then maybe he took him to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that actually predicts the way, the form of, of, of transportation Jesus would use as he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a donkey. And then maybe Jesus took him over to Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18, which talks about his suffering and exactly what would happen when he was hanging on the cross and says this, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on all my bones, my stare and my gloat over them. They divide my garments among, among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And if that wasn't enough, maybe Jesus jumped back into Isaiah in Isaiah 53, verses 6 through 7, to describe the kind of suffering that he would go through, which says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was uh, displeased or uh, dispensed, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned aside everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you imagine just what's happening? They're like, oh my. Oh my goodness. Can you believe this? Then maybe Jesus jumps back in the book of Psalms and echoes the words of David in terms of a reference to the resurrection in John, or, um, Psalm 16. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. He's talking about Jesus. You will make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Just a couple more. Maybe he jumps back into Isaiah. He goes back to Isaiah 53, verse 10, that says this. Here's the promise of the resurrection. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering of sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Here's what's crazy. Job's the oldest book in the Bible. Do you know the resurrection is embedded in Job? It came out of the words of Job, his own mouth. Remember Job, the guy of suffering? The guy that nobody wants to live like Job? Listen to what he says in Job 19, verses 25 and 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. He's talking about resurrection. This is long before this ever come about. Can you imagine if that was similar to the conversation? Their minds just went poof. And now they're seeing for the first time, wow. This is something that God has been doing for longer than just my lifetime. This has been something that God has planned forever. And now it's unfolding. And now I'm seeing all the things that I studied as a boy, all the things that I understood, all the scriptures that I memorized. Now for the first time, I actually understand them because this stranger is explaining to us that the person that this is talking about is Jesus. And there's this moment of clarity that comes. There's this moment that there starts to be some understanding. And I think for all of us, There's that moment where things that didn't make sense before began to make sense. Before you thought, this doesn't, I don't understand this. And now God begins to reveal to you things that you didn't see before. And now you're like, oh, how could I have not seen that? Because God hadn't revealed it to you fully yet. Then there's a fourth thing going on in this journey. 
Look at verses 28 to 32. The journey of understanding Jesus is it's surprised by an encounter. So going on, verse 28 says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going a little further, but they urged him, stay, uh, uh, heard him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Can you imagine, just for a moment, how frustrating that would be? We see, I, whoa, we got questions. Where are you going? Wait. And he vanishes. And then then he, they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us? The scriptures, that's an understatement. Did our hearts not burn? Did our minds not explode when he was explaining this, that we could see this? And then he reveals himself, and they're like, it's you. There's this surprise moment where Jesus shows up, and then they get it. They get it from the history. They get it from the scriptures. And now he's sitting in front of them, and the lights come on. And I think there's those moments in our life where the surprise comes and it hits you in a place that you, you can't believe it, that your eyes are open, your heart is burning, something's happening inside of you that goes way beyond your understanding. I think that's what's happening. Remember, these guys knew the scriptures, and yet when Jesus showed them the scriptures, they finally got it. Why? Because it was a supernatural act of God causing their hearts to burn with understanding for what they were seeing. And in my experience in my life, and the people that I know, there is a moment in time where God goes beyond your study and your understanding and your knowledge and allows your heart to burn within you because you're starting to get something that you never had before. Let me tell you a short story about a friend of mine named Lisa. The first time I met Lisa was sitting across the table with her four days after her, her husband had dropped dead of a massive heart attack. It's the first time that I met her. I had known of Lisa to that point, but I never met her in person. The reason I know her is because her husband, Steve, was a part of our church up in Oregon. And Steve was faithful, and he was there every Sunday, and he served, and he loved Jesus, and, and was a great guy. But Lisa was the exact opposite. She said, I don't buy it. I don't believe that there is a God. I'm too smart for that. She was a very shrewd businesswoman, very highly educated, but she had no place for God in her life. And yet then she's sitting across the table with me, mourning the loss of the love of her life. And I remember even sitting with her, and I, and I had heard of Lisa from Steve. Like, don't mess with Lisa, because she's a hardcore atheist, and she's not going to believe anything you say. It's amazing what pain does to a person. So we had conversations, and multiple, more conversations. We planned out the memorial, and so the church really engaged in caring for her and her family, and so we, we went through the memorial, and, and I remember afterwards we talked a little bit, and and I noticed that there was a little bit of, you could tell there's some confusion in her about what was going on, trying to reconcile these things, but she was still kind of holding out. And so a uh, couple probably weeks go by, and I had talked to her on the phone a little bit, and I had talked to her daughter as well, who had been going to her church for a while. And, and so probably, I don't know, maybe a month or so after the memorial, Lisa shows up on a Sunday morning. So just so you know, one of the things I usually don't do as a pastor, is going to sound strange, I don't invite people to church. If they find out that I'm a pastor and they want to come to church, then I'll invite them after they find that out and they're, they're interested. But I had never invited Lisa to church. The only time she had been at church was at the memorial for her husband. She shows up on a Sunday morning. I'm like, oh, this is strange. Why is she here? And so she sits through the service and she starts crying. I'm like, wow, she's like a hard woman. She doesn't cry. She barely cried at the, at the memorial. 
And so then the next week comes, and she comes back. And then the next week, and the next, she starts coming to church every single week. And then she comes up to me afterwards, and she starts saying to me, I never understood this before, but something's starting to make sense to me. And I'm like, okay, this is a miracle. And so she keeps coming every week. I mean, the most faithful attender, and she didn't miss a Sunday. And I think three or four months goes by, and we hit Easter. And our Easter service up in Oregon was similar to ours down here. We went to a community, well, we went to a, basically a middle school gym. And so she came to Easter, and, and uh, the gym was packed. And you might have heard me tell the story before. It was profound. End of the service, I gave a, a specific invitation for people to say yes to Jesus. And I told them there was going to be prayer teams available, and you need to get out of your seat in order to respond. So, I mean, I barely finished saying that. And she's sitting in the far from the stage, the far left corner of the room. And I don't know if they had a fight that morning, but her daughter was sitting in the far right corner of the gym. And as soon as I literally finish saying that, Lisa steps up. I mean, she stands right up, and she starts coming down out of the bleachers and starts walking towards the prayer teams. And just simultaneously that happens, her daughter on the other side of the gym sees her, and she stands up. And this is what's crazy. There's probably 700 people in the gym, and only two of them are standing. And so everybody is seeing this. And the majority of people in our church knew Lisa's journey. So Lisa starts coming to the center, and her daughter starts coming to the center, and they meet. It's like you couldn't have orchestrated it. Right at the center aisle, right dead center, like center court on the basketball court, right in the middle of the gym. All eyes were on them, and Lisa's just sobbing. And her daughter takes her, and she, she hugs her, and, and her daughter's sobbing. And the whole gym starts sobbing. Lisa gave her life to Jesus that day. And then four weeks later, I got to baptize her. And then about six months later, she found another guy who loves Jesus, and she got married. And the last time I had contact with Lisa, she was deeply involved in a church, following Jesus. And I look back, and I think, how in the world does that happen? That happens because there's a surprise encounter in the middle of crisis where Jesus shows up and blows your mind in such a way that goes way beyond your explanation of your pain, your suffering, the way God works, and you just have to be left with, it's God. That's the power of the resurrection. The resurrection doesn't make sense because nobody else has ever beat death. Jesus has beat death, and we can't make sense of it. But that's okay. You don't have to because sometimes you just have to experience God instead of explaining him. And that's the way that Jesus works. And there's a final thing. Look at verses 33 to 35. Because this journey and understanding, Jesus leads us to embracing it and then sharing it. So listen to the last few verses. It says, And they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what, they, what had happened on the road and how he was, uh, was known to them in the breaking of bread. So we read that and go, wow, they were pretty excited. They went and they back to Jerusalem and they told everybody it's only seven miles. Maybe they ran, whatever. There's something really significant going on. Earlier in the passage, you have to understand. So in that day and age, they didn't have lights. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have street lights. They didn't have things like, you know, when you go out at night, you can drive down the street because we have lights. You have a car that has lights. You have a street that has lights. They didn't have that back then. And the normal custom is you knew when you were traveling, you didn't travel at night because of two reasons. Because you could get robbed and you could be attacked by a wild animal. So it even says it. When they got to that place, they said to him, what did they say? The, the day's far spent. Don't go any further. Come into the inn with us. Stay with us. Why? Because that's the normal custom. You don't travel at night because there's too much danger. Well, you wait till the sun comes up the next morning, and then you continue on your journey. 
What does it say in this passage? After Jesus vanishes, it says within that hour, it's dark, it's close to the middle of the night, what do they do? You know, I think we've got to get some sleep on this one, wait till the sun comes out, and then we'll head back to Jerusalem and tell everybody we saw Jesus. No, what, did, what happened? They get up and they go back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night, in pitch black. Why? Because when you encounter Jesus and he makes himself real to you, you forget about your safety and your comfort. It doesn't matter anymore. You've seen Jesus, and you want to share the fact that you've seen Jesus in such a way in your life that everything changes and you can't contain it. If you can contain it, maybe you haven't seen Jesus yet. That's what happened to them. They just completely forgot. Wait, 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 we're in this inn for a reason. We told Jesus to come in for a reason. And now we've forgotten all of that. Why? Because we have to go tell the others that we've seen Jesus. He's alive. When was the last time you had that kind of passion and zeal that you, were, you couldn't contain it? You had to share God's love with people. Why? Because it so overwhelmed you that you lost sight of your own convenience, your comfort, your safety. That all went out the window. Why? Because it was about Jesus and other people. When was the last time that happened? That's what happens when you encounter Jesus as the risen Savior. Everything changes. Look at Paul's story. He, we knew him as Saul, and he was, he, was, he was going the opposite direction of what God wanted to do. He was murdering Christians, incarcerating them, and he actually had special letters from the religious leaders in Jerusalem to go to find all these renegade Jews that were becoming Christians to incarcerate them to stop the movement of the church in Christianity. And then what happens to Paul? On the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and he has this vision that changes everything about his direction in life. Because in that moment, three days later, everything changed for Paul. He now turned and went 180 and now he wasn't against the church, he was for the church. He wasn't against Jesus, he was for Jesus. Why? Because he had seen Jesus. Now, I know some of you right now, you're thinking, well, this is great. Could Jesus please walk in the room right now so I could have an encounter with him and I could be just like the rest of them? Newsflash, he's probably not going to do that. But there's something really important you have to understand. Remember last week we were in John chapter 20? And remember the encounter that Thomas had with Jesus? And Thomas demanded that I will only believe if I can, what, touch the nail prints in his hand and put my hand in his side where he was pierced. Then I'll believe. And in that encounter, we never have record that Thomas actually touches Jesus. But then Jesus says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says this to Thomas. Thomas, that's good. You believe because you see. But then Jesus says, but there are people that will be even more blessed than you because they believe and they won't see. But they still believe. Why did Jesus said that? Because he knows that there's a group of people in Simi Valley 2,000 years later that would want him to walk in the room and he says, no, you're more blessed than Thomas if you believe without seeing. Because why can we believe? Because God's spirit lives inside of us. The same spirit that dwelled in Jesus, the same spirit that raised him from the dead is the spirit of God that lives inside of us when you say yes to Jesus. So he is with us. And he is alive, and he is going to return. That means we should be alive. That means our life should be different. Now, this is not to say, okay, i got to work up emotion. Okay, Jesus is alive, so now I have to be more excited and more energetic. No, you need an encounter with Jesus. You need your mind blown by Jesus. You need clarity to come. You need a surprise. You need Jesus to encounter you in such a way that you're like Paul, that your life changes 180 degrees. Why? Because now I see the truth of what I was missing. And now God has made it obvious to me. Would you close your eyes? The, the worship team is going to come. We're going to do one last song together. And I really, I want this to be just a point of response to, to what we believe that Jesus wants to do in our lives today. And that's this.
the story that we just walked through, this journey to understanding, this journey to Emmaus, is not legend or folklore or fairy tale that is nice for us to look at. It's the reality of the way that Jesus encounters people. And although we're not walking physically away from something, I am convinced that Jesus is walking with us today, no matter where we are, if we've found ourselves disillusioned or discouraged or confused, or even if we're at a place now where we feel like we're leaning into Jesus, I'm convinced that he's present. Because whether it happens in the next few moments together, or it happens in the car on the way home, or it happens when you're in the middle of sleeping in the middle of the night, or it happens at your job tomorrow, or it happens in school, wherever it is, or it happens when you're out walking your neighborhood, however it happens, I'm convinced Jesus wants to encounter us. And he's walking alongside of us and he's waiting for the moment where our eyes need to be opened, our hearts need to burn because we understand who he is and then the things that didn't make sense before now become clear. The best teacher can't do that. The best worship team can't do that. The best church in town can't do that. Only Jesus can do that. So Lord Jesus, we pray today, Lord, I don't know where each person is in this journey, but I know one thing's for sure. You want to meet us right where we're at. So Lord, I pray that as we surrender our agenda, we surrender ourselves, as we get over ourselves and and start to focus in on you, that right where we're at, Jesus, would you come right now by your spirit and would you open our eyes, cause our hearts to burn, give us clarity for who you are so that our lives are transformed from the inside out, so that we are different because we've encountered you. Lord, I know that you can do this, and we ask that you would do that in each one of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, in your